Welcome to the Governance Podcast from the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society here at King College London. My name is Mark Pennington and I'm the Director of the Centre. I'm delighted to have with me today Professor Cass Sunstein. Professor Sunstein is the Robert Wormsley Professor at Harvard University where he's the Founder and Director of the Programme on Behavioural Economics and Public Policy at Harvard Law School. He's a recipient of numerous awards and prizes, including in 2020, the Holberg Prize from the Norwegian government, which is a sort of law and economics, sorry, law and humanities equivalent to the Nobel Prizes. He's occupied senior advisory positions with the Obama and Biden administrations in the United States, and he's an advisor to the UK government's Behavioral Insights Unit. To name but a few of his works, just in the last 15 years, He's published Nudge, written with Richard Thaler in 2008, Simpler, The Future of Government, published in 2013, The Ethics of Influence in 2015, The Cost-Benefit Revolution in 2018, On Freedom in 2019, and Too Much Information in 2020. Cass, it's very great to have you with us here today. There's almost actually too many books there <laughs> to actually list. Um, but yeah, wonderful to have you with us. So we're really pleased to have you here because you're giving this um, really what sounds like a fascinating lecture this evening entitled The Use of Algorithms in Society. So a little bit later on in the podcast, I want to get into the, the substance of what you're alluding to there with that title. But I wonder if we could just start off at the simplest level in having a definition of what is an algorithm? What, what do algorithms do? Great, thank you, and it's a great pleasure to be here and an honor. So, in ordinary language, if there is one for algorithms, <laughs> the term can include and often is defined to include any simple rule for, e.g., prediction. So, if you say that when a child is born in the United Kingdom, we're going to create an APGAR score, which basically is a score about five attributes of a newborn, and we're going to give a numerical ranking to each of the hmm. attributes, and then we're going to add them up, and if they're above a certain amount, the newborn is declared to be healthy. That That's an algorithm in standard definition. I'm using the term in these remarks to mean something like that involving machine learning or artificial intelligence, where you put in certain inputs, hmm. you could consider it, you know, is there going to be a certain level of snowfall in some part of the world and the next month. So we put certain inputs in and then the algorithm says yes. It might make a probability judgment. It might say yes. It might say no. And it's inputs, program, outputs with machine learning or AI. So algorithms are essentially computer-formulated rules. Is that, is that, would that be a correct yes. kind of way of thinking that, about that's, it? That's good enough, with my focus being on predictions by algorithms rather yeah. than you know, some rule of something that doesn't involve a predictive judgment. Yeah. Okay, that, that, that's great. That's very clear. And it really leads into the, the first question I wanted to ask you, which is to think about, in your view, what is it about these algorithms that might actually be able to help to improve human decision-making? So I wanted to connect this discussion really with some of the, the previous work that you've done, the famous work you've done with people like Richard Thaler, where you argue essentially that the kind of rules that humans follow when they're making decisions can be biased in various ways. And therefore, clearly that opens a space perhaps for de-biasing those decision-making processes. So 
how is it you think that algorithms may be able to be involved in that process of kind of debiasing or improving the kind of decisions that people make? Yeah, that's great. So let's suppose that when people make predictions, they use heuristics or rules of thumb that are generally sensible, but then can lead them in not good directions. So let's suppose in deciding whether there's a risk of crime in my neighborhood, I think, can I think of cases in which there was crime in my neighborhood, which is the availability heuristic? Yeah. And it's, it's actually pretty good, if, unless you just moved to the neighborhood yesterday, in which case your memory won't be reliable. But it's a form of intuitive sampling. And if there's been no crime in your neighborhood in 12 years you live there, you think the likelihood is really small. And if there's been plenty of crime, you think it's high. So that's available, the availability heuristic. It can lead to inaccurate judgments as when something is cognitively available, but it's not statistically helpful that it happened, but the risk is actually really low. Or you can't think of an example, but the risk is actually really high. So the availability heuristic it leads to a bias, sometimes yep. too much complacency, sometimes too much fear. An algorithm ought to be able to avoid availability bias unless it's programmed to show it. So if you ask it what's the likelihood that something there's going to be crime in a specific neighborhood, you give it inputs and then it's going to spit out a predictive judgment, which will be a probability judgment. And if you gave it the right inputs, then the output should be accurate. And there's no reason to think it would use the availability heuristic. Typically, algorithms don't use the heuristics mm -hmm. that lead to biases on the part of human beings. Here's another one that's maybe a little more entertaining, which is optimistic bias, where people tend to have an unrealistic sense of their own immunity from harm. There's also the planning fallacy, where people think the likelihood I'll finish a project is by a certain time. Yeah. We all find, and it's, it's an optimistic projection. We all fall prey to it. I'm working on a book right now, by the way, and I expect to finish it by June 1st. But I know about the planning fallacy, so I'm not going to finish it by <laughs> June 1st. Uh, an algorithm would not have to self-correct because it wouldn't fall victim to the planning fallacy. So that's a great virtue of algorithms, that the unrealistic optimism that human beings maybe are evolutionarily prone to. It's good to be optimistic, but that leads them astray in some of the mental shortcuts. There's another point, which is that human beings tend to be noisy in the sense of all over the place in their judgments. Yeah. And algorithms are at least certain kinds will spit out the same answer every time. They can be designed in ways that they won't, but they typically do. With respect so they to smooth them. out kind of noisy, noisy situations. Completely. And noise is less charismatic than bias, but it's really important. And algorithms should be able to avoid bias. They will be able to avoid noise. I said should for bias because they can be programmed in such a way as to show bias. And I bet some people are thinking about mm. race or sex bias. That's not what yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah. But that's, of course, very important. And we can discuss that if you like. Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the, the drafts that I've seen of talk that you're giving to us this evening, you use this fascinating example of judges of how they are biased in various ways. So as I understand the examples, there's a tendency to release high-risk criminals more than algorithms might do, but there's also a tendency to treat 
as high risk what actually might be quite low risk criminals when the offence that they've engaged in is just a kind of misdemeanour or something of that kind. So could you maybe talk us through a little bit about that particular example? It's phenomenal data and what I'm about to talk, say is about judges but we have reason to think it's true for human beings in many different social yeah. roles. So the question is, do you give someone bail so they can go out and be with their family and do their job pending trial, or do you keep them in prison pending trial? And in some places, the question is, is there a flight risk? And in other places, the question is, is there a risk they're going to commit crimes while they're out? It turns out the two are really correlated, flight risk and criminality. Okay, so in a very large data set, the algorithm outperforms the judges uh, spectacularly, that you could release tons more people and keep the crime rate the same, if that's what you wanted to do, or you could keep in prison the same number of people and cut the crime rate very dramatically, mm. if you use the algorithm. So the algorithm just outperforms the judges population-wide in a way that's massive. Um, why is that? That's it's an interesting question. Okay, the first look at the data shows just what you said, that the judges overweight the current offense. So if you have someone who, let's say, did assault, that's a pretty bad offense, but they're basically law-abiding people, the algorithm will be inclined to say, let that person have bail, it's mm. just a one-off. Um, the judge is likely to be excessively influenced by the fact that it was a terrible current offense. Or suppose someone did something not that terrible, shoplifting, in my view shoplifting's not good, but it's not that terrible. The person has a pretty bad record in the background. Mm -hmm. The algorithm will be more likely to say, don't release that person. The judge will be more likely to say, release that person, just a shoplifter. Mm. And this is we might call it current offense bias, and it's very intuitive in the human mind. You look at the offender and the offense, and you think mm. assault or mm. shoplifting. And mm. in either case, you might not, and apparently real-world judges don't, sufficiently mm. adjust for the circumstances of the person's life, which might suggest the shoplifter is mm. a real threat and that the assaulter is a uh, person mm -hmm. who had a terrible day. So these are both examples of where the kind of predictive rules that human beings use perform less well than the ones that the, the machines use in this particular case or the Completely. The and in this case, uh, sometimes the mysteries of human life are sorted out in a way that's beautifully elegant. Mm -hmm. And this is one where for decades we've had you know, demonstrations of the availability heuristic as a biasing influence on human judgment and some of the data is real world and very cool and some of it's surveys and yeah. questionable. Um, this is real world judges who are using what I think is at least a family member of the mm. with the availability heuristic. But I think it's more accurate to say it's just it is the availability heuristic. It's the same thing. Yeah. And to see that among experienced judges, you know, the judges aren't lousy, they're not terrible. Yeah. It's just they yeah. don't do as well as they should. Well, you also mentioned that, I mean, again, what I found was remarkable was um, 
what you describe as mugshot bias as influencing judges as well. Could you maybe say a little bit yeah, about the, that as well? This is one of the most intriguing findings in social science, I think, in the last decade. And here's what makes it intriguing. The current offense bias kind of shouts out from the data. So we know, we know mm -hmm. that's what's going on. But it doesn't account for all of the disparity between the judges and the algorithm. So what happened was the researchers interrogated the algorithm to ask it, what is the human bias that accounts for the rest of the difference? And it's very hard to talk to an algorithm about human biases. And uh, multiple really ingenious strategies had to mm -hmm. be done. So is it race? Is it the algorithm's less focused on race or more focused on race? No. Is it gender that the judges say women, you know, they're less threatening, they can have bail? No. Basically, age, is it young people get have to stay in jail and old people get to go home? No. None of these accounts for the bias. But if you interrogate the algorithm with kind of obsessiveness, you can find that the algorithm will tell you the judges pay a lot of attention to the mugshot. Hmm. So if someone has a messy, unkempt look, hmm. the judges weight that significantly. Hmm. The algorithm doesn't pay zero attention to the mugshot, but it doesn't pay a lot of attention to the mugshot. The algorithm does know what the mugshot looks like. Um, and this is race and sex independent, by the way. It's just mm. an independent bias, mugshot bias. Mm. And th this is a very cool finding also and beautiful because there's a heuristic called the representativeness heuristic where if you see some, let's say, young person who's dressed in a very rough way and is walking with a swagger at 11 o'clock at night, you might think I'm going to cross the street, and that, that person is representative. I'm yeah. not a good storyteller, but maybe you get it, of someone who might be not a good person to cross paths with late at night. And the representative heuristic is pretty good, but mm. it leads to errors. There are a lot of people who look like this who aren't threatening mm. at all. And the mugshot bias is the representativeness heuristic. It's that an unkempt face is representative of, I don't know, self-control problems. Yeah. When I, when I was working through that example, I mean, I was thinking, does this also mean that if people know that people have these biases, that they actually do manipulate the bias? So if I've committed a crime, is my lawyer going to tell me, well, you know, comb your hair, do this that, and the other, because this means you're more likely to be released on bail. I mean, is this what is this what happens? That's great. I am a lawyer. I'm not a criminal defense lawyer, <laughs> but I do. These are my brothers and sisters and informal lawyer is you're exactly right. Yeah. that the lawyers have an intuitive understanding that matters and it's clean mm. yourself up. That said, mm. I hadn't thought of yeah. that. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no problem. Now, one other intriguing thing you said around this example and some of the others is that although the algorithms outperform regular human beings, if you like, in most cases, there is a class of decisions where there are certain individuals, a small number of individuals who do actually outperform the algorithm. Now, what is it about these actors that enables them to outperform the algorithm when the rest of us don't? This is fantastic and very recent research. So we know the aggregate data, algorithm hooray, human judges less hooray. 
We know then the data is very complicated and cool, and here's the, the, the split. 90% of judges do worse than the algorithm, and among a number of them, they rely heavily on whether they have recently been given information about someone who was allowed bail who did a crime. And they're very reactive to that, and they screwed up because they don't allow people bail who should be given bail. But 10% do better. All we know about the 10% is that they must have private information, but the algorithm lacks. But the data isn't articulate about what exactly they know. Mm. We just know they do better and that they're mm. not overreacting. They're not showing current offense bias. They're not showing mugshot bias. They're not showing, let's say, adjacent case bias. They're alert to something. Now, we can speculate about what that is. Um, it, it must be, I will say it cautiously, something about the interaction between the judge and the defendant mm. that and the circumstances that tells the judge something that mm. the algorithm doesn't have access to. Mm. And I can make up some hypotheses. So would this be, an example, would this be like when someone can you know, you're interacting with someone, you can kind of sense whether they're faking it in some way, that you are trying to manipulate things. And I know there is some kind of evolutionary yeah. research which suggests that some people are particularly attuned to basically the, the lies or opportunism yeah. to spot opportunistic actors. Is it something analogous that, to that? That's very plausible. So that's, that's a testable hypothesis and a yeah. very reasonable one. So here's one way to think about it. It's and I don't know the data on the particular issue I'm about to get to, but we know that interviews are not super helpful for job performance. So if you interview someone, one thing you will learn very quickly, which is the likelihood that you like that person yeah. in the job. <laughs> interviews are very predictive yeah. of that, but they're not very predictive of job performance. It mm -hmm. might, what's much better is the record. Did the, is, is the person have a good history of performing well mm. and something similar. That's really predictive. And people overweight interviews. In my own universities, I've been on a failed campaign for a long time to downweight interview judgments. But consistent with what you just said, and here's the hypothesis, there's some number of interviewers, or there's some number of interviewer, interviewee interactions yeah. that really do pick up something important that the, let's say, algorithm equivalent, mm. you know, what's the experience, what's mm. the publications, what's the recommendations, that those things don't pick up. So you might pick up that someone's, you know, charming, yep. and, and that might really matter, or that someone's really trustworthy, and that that matters on the job, and, mm. and you, you wouldn't give it sufficient weight, maybe, unless you actually mm. saw it. Well, that, I mean, that's a good point to connect me into the next sort of question that I wanted to ask, which is, so you have this title, The Use of Algorithms in Society, which is, is a nice riff on a famous paper by F.A. Hayek, The Use of Knowledge in Society. And one of the arguments he makes in that paper is that there's a certain type of knowledge that, that economic planners don't have access to, which he calls the, the knowledge of the kind of man on the spot. It's kind of context-specific knowledge that isn't, easily grasped by some kind of external agent who isn't embedded in a particular situation. 
And just when you were talking about the interview situation then, it reminded me very much of that kind of dynamic. Is there something, is there a kind of layer of knowledge that these kind of classification systems at the aggregate level, like algorithms, simply can't access yeah, in the way fantastic. that Hayek thinks that planners can't yeah, access that information? That's fantastic. And, and the way you put it helped me to see something I hadn't seen until you put it that way. So let, let's talk to my pre Mark thought, and now I'll have my, now that yeah. you put it that way, I'll, I'll say it. So the, the basic idea is in Hayek's incredible article, incredibly good article, the, the, the assumption is planners are really smart and well-motivated, yep. and still they're going to screw up because they won't have the knowledge that's dispersed in society, including that of the actors on the spot who will see something or know something. Mm. I saw this in government, by the way, all the time, where I was a regulator, and we would see things in a way that was thin. It was, you know, we yeah. tried, and then the public comment process, someone would say from somewhere, you don't understand how this is going to be on the spot for me. And the person who would say that wouldn't be unique. That would be a representative of some and people and we didn't see it and now a good regulatory process can correct against the worst if it's responsive in this way but it, it's going to miss things okay so the thought is algorithms are kind of like that that what's happening on the spot they are going to be extremely challenged to see i'll give, give an example which is algorithms have a very poor record in two domains that are relevant. One is life traje trajectories. Mm -hmm. How is someone going to do over the course of four years, given you know a ton of things about the previous years? And algorithms really struggle. There's so much happening in a life. And how can you mm -hmm. know whether some girl named Mary is going to be flourishing or not at age 13, given a ton of data at age three, five, seven, and nine? It's just too much. Mm. An algorithm can't know all those things. Now, I want to be careful about can't, but let's let's be brave and stick with it for now. Okay, what, what you're pointing to is that the private information that that 10% of judges have, mm. this I hadn't seen clearly enough, it's really like what Hayek is talking about. They have local knowledge. And how can you give an algorithm local knowledge? Mm. Would the algorithm engage with the criminal defendant, maybe in the fullness of time. I think the, the other thing that struck me about that was thinking about, well, how do we identify who these people are? So if there are people who've got this right. different layer of knowledge that can beat the owl, but we don't know who they are, but it, it will be in our interest to find out who they are. What can we do to sort of, to get that balance? So we're really talking about empirical as well as theoretical frontiers. Yeah. So with judges, we can we can find out. Yeah. And we know who they are. We know who the people Now there's a parallel data set, eerily parallel, involving doctors, hmm. where doctors diagnosing, deciding whether to test people for a heart attack, fall prey to the almost exactly the same errors that judges do. Hmm. What we don't know is whether 10% of doctors outperform the algorithm. It would be lovely to think so, and I, I, I bet it's so. Yep. The 10% of the doctors do better than the algorithm, and the reason is they'll know something about the particular context. 
Mm. The, the, like, like you're saying about someone who can pick up something about dishonesty, they'll have an intuitive assessment of whether that person actually had a heart disease, which is extremely finely tuned mm. to the situation. Now, in a, in a time when algorithms are getting better and better and better, with the 10% of judges who outperform the algorithms diminish to 5%, to 3%, to 2%, to mm. maybe 0.5%, and with doctors, similar question. But right now, excellent algorithms for judging are outperformed by 10% of judges, mm. and it would be stunning if there isn't some number of doctors who have local knowledge. Mm. On that, is there any way in which humans themselves can kind of use the algorithm but without actually being told if you like what to do to do by the algorithm so we can get algorithms into people's hands that if i'm a judge i can use the algorithm to try to identify data sort of differences or discrepancies that i might not otherwise be aware of but then i can try to combine it in some sense with the more context specific knowledge that i have is, is that something that's Yes. be the way forward in this area? Yes, it's a way forward. Whether yeah. it's the way forward yeah. depends on whether you get better aggregate outcomes yeah. with algorithm as an advisor than you would with people not hearing algorithms or with people who would just be bound by algorithms. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure there are cases in which uh, better not to listen to the algorithm at all, mm. better to listen to the algorithm mm. but not be defer to it, better to be bound by the algorithm. I played chess on Air France uh, a number of years ago. I'm a bad chess player, so I put it at the easiest level, and the algorithm at the easiest level, I learned, says get the opponent in check as fast as you can. And I could beat that <laughs> because it was just trying to get me in check all the time and leaving its queen vulnerable. I was in check. Okay, I'll take your queen. And that algorithm would not be a good advisor. Yeah, yeah. Can we go through some of the, maybe some of the other examples where you say that the algorithms don't seem to perform so well? So one, you know, you talk about r romance, picking romantic partners. I mean, is, is this another example? What is the reason there why... The algorithms don't do so okay. well. It's a fantastic question and a fantastic set of data. So we know the uh, conclusion, which algorithms perform very poorly on romantic attraction, whether sparks are going to fly. The thesis of the people who have done, I think, the best empirical work is that it's a chaos-like process. Mm. That's a little bit of a black box, so mm. let's go in the black box. Okay, whether a spark's going to fl fly such that people will date, let's say, and form a serious relationship, depends on maybe 12 things at least, which are not captured by asking about people's interests and personality. So, like, what's the weather like? What's the location they went to? How's the day going for each of the people? Has the person had some work problem at the time? It's a little like the Hayek question about local knowledge, but in a way even broader, that, that the number of things that produce, I'm thinking of my wife and me right now, spark that flies is so big, and the number of things that could have stopped the sparks from flying 
he said with a tear, is also so big that it it is very, very challenging for an algorithm to get access to. Now, what I'm wondering is whether algorithms will get better at that. So it might be that if an algorithm knows that, let's say someone named John really liked someone named Mary and someone named Amy and didn't like someone named Eleanor and someone named Tara, the algorithm might see, oh, he likes those types and mm. not those types. And maybe that will at least improve probability judgments. But we don't have any data supportive of the hypothesis I just gave. Okay, terrific. Another point which I think gets at, um, I guess, the kind of arguments that people like Hayek would make in the context of thinking about the strengths and maybe the limits of algorithms is to think about the role that human creativity might play in kind of disturbing the capacity to make accurate predictions about the future. So as I understand it, the algorithms tend to do quite well when you've got sort of lots of previous events which are relatively stable and then you can predict those out into the future. But they do less well where the factors that might influence the future aren't actually known, that we're in what, when you, what you described in the, the romance context as a kind of almost chaotic situation. If we think sort of chaos theory here, where there are too right. many variables interacting in kind of nonlinear ways, is this an area where algorithms struggle, or is this an area where we might have reason to think that they could improve over time? No, this is great. So uh, thinking whether the problem you put your finger on is best described as a small sample size problem, which is not the standard way to think of it. Mm. So and I think that's a set of cases are like this, where you have something extremely surprising that's not in the existing data, and then the algorithm can't anticipate that. And it might be, I don't know, uh, an invasion of a country, a pandemic, a technological shock, mm. the rise of ChatGPT. Good mm. algorithms have predicted that, mm. maybe. And that, yes, it is rel even if there's a ton of data, data mm. a massive data set, it might be a small sample size, given that the thing that is happening is new. And if you had a larger sample size, it wouldn't be new. Yeah. It would just be rare. I mean, I, I was thinking of equivalence in, in macroeconomics. Representative agent models have been very influential. And there are some people in the, the sort of broadly Hayekian tradition who make the point that, well, the problem is that change, unexpected changes, arises from agents who aren't representative. They are kind of entrepreneurs, if you like, right. who do something outside of the expected range. And that's what kind of wrecks the predictive capacity in the sort of medium to longer term. So if you have multiple agents in a system, perhaps there are only about five or 10% of actors who are doing these non-representative acts and kind of shifting the parameters within which other actors work, this is going to be a type of problem that is going to be difficult for an algorithm to address because that change is what introduces this kind of quasi chaotic element into the, to, into the system. Right, I'm thinking there are a couple different things. One is social interactions, where you might get a shocking bestseller yeah. that, or Star Wars or something, where let's just stipulate the prediction was impossible because there were interactions between persons that couldn't have been 
participated. So that, that's one thing. Then another thing is you might get Taylor Swift or Elvis Presley or the Beatles, mm. and whether those are spectacular innovators or the beneficiaries of social mm. interactions such that ex post we see them as spectacular innovators okay. is a fair question. But you might get, let's say, some product, the iPhone, that is you know, fantastically successful and changes things that couldn't have been anticipated before, not, let's say, because of social interactions, but just because it's so amazing. Mm. It's like a pandemic. And I do think that is a, a serious problem for algorithms. I'm, I'm not sure I, at least, am clear enough about how to describe it. Yeah. So I do know there's a view that is true, accurate, that is algorithms work well, like in the heart disease and bail case, where you have a ton of data sets in a very stable environment, yeah. and they don't work well where there's a new or unanticipated thing and an ever-changing, unstable environment. So to predict the course of a pandemic in an early stage, it might be really hard for an algorithm. Is it going to mm. see exponential growth that it better? Is it going to, it's a pretty bad algorithm if it doesn't, is it going to see that exponential growth might be truncated by X or Y or Z or might not be? What I'm pondering is whether the exponential growth of a pandemic is like Taylor Swift. Is that is that what mm. it's like? Mm. Probably. Now, is, is it that the algorithm doesn't have enough data. Is it that it's a one-off? I don't know. Well, what I find fascinating about the, your analysis is that, I mean, it actually, like a great deal of your work, it, it's very nuanced in the sense that you're, you're not saying algorithms are superior or human beings are superior. You're very much saying that it really depends on the situation. It depends yeah. on the context. Now, I guess the issue then is, well, how do we know which of those cases we're in? What is the mechanism we use to decide, well, when should we use algorithms or when should we be more skeptical of them? Can we have confidence in the data at that level that, you know, that can guide us in terms of what, when we should be thinking of using these or not? Okay, good. I think we know the APGAR score outperforms human doctors and nurses unarmed yeah. with it. Yeah. because biases and noise can screw it up. We know that for flight risk and heart attack diagnosis, the algorithm does better. I think to interrogate, to collect data and, and interrogate it, so you, know, you and I have developed a hypothesis, which is that the doctors on aggregate do better, do worse than the algorithm, but the 10% of doctors mm. do better. Now, is that true? Then what we might do is think, is there, okay, okay, this is a, a new thought. Just as we know only in the last few months about mugshot bias, the algorithm told us that. We don't know why the 10% of human beings who do better in the bail setting do better. What is it that they do? Now maybe, it's not like they're magic. It's just that they pay attention to something that the 90% don't and could, or they pay attention to something that the algorithm doesn't pay attention to and could. So I think going context by context maybe and mm -hmm. seeing 
in sports, there are algorithm ways of evaluating players yeah. that are better than intuitions. And to know why and mm -hmm. are there limits. We know that some things in the nature of the beast, this is the strong version of the thesis, aren't predictable. I think this is true. It seems to be true. Or at least you can predict that a song I sing with a backup group consisting of my friends at Harvard will fail. <laughs> That's a fair <laughs> prediction. An algorithm will predict that, but I think any one of us could. We know that a new song by Gomez has a really good chance, but outside of the obvious struggles. And can we do better eventually? Can algorithms do better eventually? I don't think a lot better, but I'm cautious about that. I think the reason that I raise that question is, I mean, again, it's, it's a kind of um, Hayek-related thing, but it wouldn't only be, I think, people mm. like him who would make this kind of point, that this would seem to be a case for where you would want to, at least to some extent, fracture authority. You know, you would want to have, diff and this mm. is arguably the great thing about the United States is that you have got a kind of laboratory of experimentation with the federal system, right. that you would want something like that to be probing what these boundaries are in this kind of meta-level sense of deciding what are the contexts where the algorithm does better than the human and vice versa. To be very um, uh, empirical about what we're observing. So uh, do algorithms predict, let's say, deaths from extreme heat? Yeah. That would be really great to know. What yeah. do they do well that if they outperform people? What do they attend to? Or what do people attend to that they shouldn't attend to? Hmm. So a context by context, I mean, because algorithms are getting so much better so quickly, the strong version of my thesis, which is that there are some things that it's in their nature that algorithms aren't going to be able mm. to do very well on, is is a little Luddite, but I'm sticking with it. <laughs> okay, well that 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 leads on quite nicely actually to the the sort of last set of questions I'd like to ask you about this, which is you mentioned the idea of algorithm aversion, that people for various reasons are skeptical of using these kind of technologies. And I think we see this in different ways, actually, across different political points of view. There are people, I think you could broadly describe as being on the left of politics, who are very suspicious of what they call surveillance capitalism, that they're being monitored through these kind of algorithmic techniques and pushed in different ways through Facebook or music aggregators or whatever it may be. And then you have equally people, I guess, who are more on the right of politics, who are concerned about a big brother state using algorithms to sort of manipulate people. So why do you think it is that people have these concerns? Are they valid concerns? I, I wonder if you could speak a little bit to, to that. That's great. So let's start small. Um, sometimes people dislike algorithms because they don't know how they work. So people will think, I don't want an algorithm deciding this with respect to my life. Yeah. And then if it's explained to them how they work with large data sets, people tend to be more comfortable. So that's one, one thing. Another reason people don't like algorithms is they want a human being to whom they can speak who will see their individual situation. And that might be 
an exaggerated sense of what comes of that, of the good that comes of that, or it might be a sensible sense that it's like the 10% of doctors, that you can get the decision maker outperforming the algorithm, which seems uh, unattuned to something that might matter. So that's, that's fair. There are also concerns on the left in particular, but not only on the left, about race and sex discrimination, hmm. yeah. which might be correct if the algorithm, for example, encodes data that is an artifact of discrimination. Mm. So if you build on arrest records and stipulate that people of color are more likely to be arrested, then mm. etc. So that might be fair. Surveillance capitalism. I don't love the term, I confess. Why don't I love the term? I love capitalism. I don't know why I don't love the term, but let, let's talk about the legitimate concerns that make that give, made the term go viral. One is that a self-interested company might know a lot about you and therefore try to sell something to you, given that knows a lot about you. I think that's the concern. Okay, let's say, let's be optimistic. That's great. If an algorithm knows I like books about behavioral economics and I like books about Hayek and I like books written by Daniel Kahneman yeah. and it's going to show yeah. me those books, that's hooray. And if the algorithm is not going to show me books about some historical question that I have no interest in, hooray. <laughs> so the fact that algorithms can attend to your interests and concerns, that's great. And Amazon's doing that. It says, gives me, it's a little like Christmas, that it gives me an opportunity to see yeah. books that I'll tend to like. And it doesn't deluge me with books that I won't like or music that I won't like. So that's, that's good surveillance capitalism. Yeah. There are a couple of things that might not be so good. One is if data is collected without your consent. And so I think if people don't want a company to be learning about their tastes, mm. probably right to say they should be entitled to say, don't don't track my tastes. It might be that their desire not to be tracked is based on an excessive fear, but... I think I think another concern that people have is it's slightly different one is more that, in a way, because the algorithms are so successful at sort of mapping what we already want, or the kind of view that we currently hold, that they lead to a kind of tunnel vision. Yeah. You don't then engage with other points of view or different types of music, whatever it may be. And this arguably, this is what we see in social media, where people in these kind of bubbles where they don't talk to people with different points of view. Yeah, I agree with that. In fact, I think for my sins, I've written three books about that. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I better agree with that, though I might be in a little tunnel vision of my own. I've written so much about that. So I agree completely. So if, if it's the case that you're creating through surveillance capitalism, let's say, a little ever decreasingly sized mm. circle of interest. That, that is a problem. So, so backing into what I like about the concern, and one is exactly what you say, that people might echo, be echo chambered. Yeah. And the other concern is that the algorithm might exploit people's lack of information or behavioral biases. So if you know that people are, let's say, present biased, or you know that they are 
so limited attention of various sorts. You can have add-on fees in the mm. case of limited attention, or you can have upfront wonderfulness and downstream big costs for present biased people. And I think this is a real problem, is the uh, development of information on the part of algorithms about each of us, including what our, our vulnerabilities. And exploiting them can cause, it's, it's, a, it's in the same category, I think, as fraud, though it's a lot softer. It's exploitation yep. of behavioral biases. So that's a problem. On the, on the what you describe as the right, the concern about the government mm. acquiring things, that's completely fair. So to be concerned about the government acquiring a ton of information about everyone and using it against them, maybe because they don't have the right political view, or using it against them to try to persuade them to, mm. let's say, vote in certain ways, that that's... I'm not sure whether that's Huxley or Orwell. Probably more Huxley than Orwell. I mean, people were concerned about that during the pandemic, about some of the, you know, mm. arguably what was sort of quasi-censorship of the various opinions that were out there. I mean, maybe some of them should have been censored, I don't know, but there's certainly a sense that people were being tracked in some cases. Yeah. No, I um, think that's a very fair worry. So you mentioned that you're writing another book, or there's another book going to be out. It's going to be finished in, in the middle of the year, or is it this? And this is not over optimistic that it'll be finished by then. So could you tell us a little bit about doing a book with a neuroscientist, Tali Sharat, called well, what's it called? It's TBD, but it's about habituation, where if you go to a place where there's terrible air pollution, the first day will be awful. The second day won't be good. By week three, maybe you won't even notice. If you live under circumstances, let's say, in which the government is corrupt, it might be that this just seems life, and the yeah. idea that this is alarming would strike you as just very surprising. It's life. We know that with people's own ethical behavior, if people start lying, that after a while they don't even mm -hmm. register that it's bad. So the the, what we're interested in is the fact that if we habituate, which all living creatures do, we will not see things that are fantastic around us. Like, you know, we have a great job, or we have great friends, or mm. we have an amazing office, really, and life is comfortable, and how lucky is that? We might even not even notice that. And if there are really bad things around us, no air pollution, cruelty mm. or something. Mm. We might not notice them either. Mm. So it's about habituation as kind of fundamental to everything, maybe the most fundamental thing of all, and a blessing and a curse. So is that is that quite similar to Amartya Sen's got the ideas about adaptive preferences? Is it is it quite similar to that? Well, or taking it's, that? it's it's much broader. Yeah. So, but the idea of adaptive preferences is an instantiation. Yeah. So your ancestors, mine too, were family members, I'm pleased to say. Our shared ancestors were much more, much less literate than we are, than we are. They didn't read books. They didn't have podcasts. They were not very sensitive to a stable environment. They would just kind of go around being what they were being. But if they were changes in their environment, they would get very agitated and start swimming and moving a lot. 
these are one-celled organisms. These are mm. our very distant ancestors. So the idea that we're extremely sensitive to change and extremely insensitive to stable environments. In fact, if you are looking at a colored drawing, if it's designed in a certain way and you just keep looking at it, it'll turn gray. You won't see the colors anymore until you move mm. your head. And the idea of adaptive references is a an example of habituation, but the phenomenon's much broader. Well, it sounds fascinating. So, you, and you're hoping to finish that in the middle of this year, or will it hopefully be out sometime next year, maybe. Uh, or? Our target date is publication in April 2024. Okay, excellent. Well, maybe we could do a podcast on that, but it's, it's yeah. certainly been really enjoyable speaking to, to you today. So thank you very much, Professor Kass Sunstein. Thank you. Great pleasure. Thank you.